Hey, good morning, LAFC. <clears throat> so uh, I just got to say, I am so thankful, so appreciative that you are here, that we're here together in person, can open up the scriptures and study to, to, together. And I say that because the last time I preached, which was at the end of May, uh, in the words of a movie from my childhood, the room was full of empty people. Uh, preaching to an empty room is a very strange thing, so I'm just so thankful that we have the opportunity uh, to be looking in the scriptures together today. Uh, my name is Corey Mitchell. Uh, I'm one of the elders here at LAFC, and we're continuing our series, Encounter Jesus, a look at the Gospel of John. Uh, you can open up to the second, we're going to be in the second part of John chapter 8, so you can open up to that. The ushers are coming down the aisles. They have Bibles for you if you need one. If you don't own a Bible, I'd encourage you to take that, make it your own, spend time in personal study. Quick shout out, uh, my wife, Sue, today's her birthday. So Sue, happy birthday. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. All right, so one of the, one of the key concepts of Bible study, and, and Pastor Tony mentioned this last week, is context. When we're looking at a text, we're looking at a passage, what's the context? Who's the author, if we know that? Um, you know, what's the setting? When's it take place? What's going on around it? Um, you know, all those aspects of context are important. Well, another aspect of context is understanding the structure of the writing, the structure of the book or whatever the text is. And so... In the Gospel of John, just looking for a moment at the overall structure of the Gospel of John. Now, there's a first chapter that's an intro that, that also goes into the chapter 2. And then there's kind of an additional chapter at the very end of the book talking about Peter and John. We best know that as where Jesus is restoring Peter um, after his death resurrection. But in between that, the, the, the bulk of the Gospel is organized around the biblical holidays, uh, these six sections that are divided up, if you will, with these uh, biblical feast festivals. Now, one of them is unnamed. You can see there on the screen uh, in chapter 5. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals, but the others are named, right? So there's tabernacles, uh, there's the Feast of Dedication, which we would know better as Hanukkah. And then there's three Passover accounts. And so it's John's Gospel. So John's different than the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's in John's Gospel that we recognize that Jesus' ministry takes place over multiple years. So three and a half year ministry. We have three Passovers uh, accounts here. Uh, another observation difference between Gospel of John and the Synoptics. Uh, with the exception, in these six sections, with the exception of chapter 4, where Jesus is going back from Passover, uh, back to the Galilee, and he goes through Samaria, and we have the account of Jesus with the woman at the well and in the Samaritan village, with the exception of that chapter, and chapter 6, which is the Passover is near, but the whole account takes place in Capernaum. With the exception of those two chapters, all of the rest of the gospel, save for those, the intro and the conclusion piece, all the rest of it takes place in and around Jerusalem. It's a very Jerusalem-centric 
gospel account in John. Now, the context for what we're looking at today, second half of John chapter 8, is during uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. So Tony started on that last week, um, and we're going to keep going with that this morning. Now, if you look, I know I said open in the second half of chapter 8, but if you just glance quickly at uh, chapter 7, verse 37, there it says it's the last and greatest day of the festival. Now, we don't know, if you take out the kind of the disputed passage in there at the beginning of chapter 8, it could be that that whole last day goes all the way through the end of chapter 8. It could be. We don't know. It's unclear. But at the very least, what we know from chapter 8, verse 59, is that this exchange that we're going to look at takes place on the temple grounds while Jesus is at the temple. So up there for tabernacles, whether it's the last day or the next day. All right, so I want to read the whole passage, and the, pa- the text I'm going to read today is, uh, again, chapter 8, verses 31 through the end of the chapter, 31 to 59, so you can follow along with me here. <clears throat> to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone, How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, 
My glory means nothing, but my Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So our primary text for the morning is verse 58, John 8:58. Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. So we're looking at these I am statements that Jesus makes uh, that are recounted by John in the gospel. Of all the I am statements in John, for me, this is the one here in 858. This is the one where Jesus most explicitly and most directly ascribes to himself the very name of God. In the other I am statements, right, it's I am as part of a statement, but in this one, it is the statement, I am. Now, how do we know, can we conclude that Jesus is really taking that name, I am, for himself? Well, I believe we can, and I believe the primary reason that we can is because of the immediate response. It's one thing to look at how Jesus' followers and his disciples and his apostles respond to his teaching, but often a really helpful apologetic for us, a really helpful defense of the faith, is to look at what his opponents do in response, and this is one of them. They immediately pick up stones to stone him, and then he hides himself because his time had not yet come. I believe they absolutely understood what he was intending to say, and they responded accordingly. Jesus taking the very name of God, I am for himself. Now, six years ago, we were doing a sermon series that was called This Side of the Cross. And as part of that series, I preached a sermon called I Am. Uh, and that, that sermon, while we looked at this passage in John 8, it was really, we looked, spent more time looking at Exodus 3, Exodus 34, Moses being called by God and their interactions where God shares the name. I really see this sermon as being the kind of the second part of that sermon. And what I want to focus on this morning is this broader exchange, the context of this back and forth exchange with where Jesus concludes with this profound statement, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. So here's what I want you to do, okay? Now, you guys look like a sharp crowd here, maybe even sharper than first service, I'm not sure. Uh, so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I think you can do two things at once. I'm going to keep talking, and you can do this while I'm talking. I want you to look through this text, 31 to 59, and I want you to count the occurrences of, word, of the words Father, Son, descendants, children, family, okay? Father, son, descendants, children, family. Just take a look and scan the text and see how many you, you find in there. Now, the reason I want you to do this and the re what I'm suggesting here is that we should read this text. We should, you know, process this entire exchange through this father-son motif, this recurring theme that goes through the exchange, the relationship of a father and a son. Now, 
In our cultural context, certainly the father-son relationship is still an important one. Those of us who are sons all had a father, and that was probably a really profound relationship in our lives. But there are certain things, I think, that have probably gotten lost culturally. And so when we think about a biblical context, right, uh, in, the, in the scriptural context of father-son, I think there are some key elements that we should just have in our mind to inform us as we read it. So here's, just, uh, here's some thoughts on that father-son relationship. So a true son, right? And that's what we're looking at here. What's a true son? How does a true son act in that relationship? A true son is in his father's house. He's watching his father. He's listening to and learning from his father, uh, perhaps even learning his trade from his father. He's doing what his father does. He's carrying the name of his father. He can speak in, in the name of his father and with the authority of his father. Okay? So that's kind of the father-son relationship, I think, in a biblical context. And a good example of this uh, is Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. If you know that parable or you think about that parable or look at that parable, and just looking at those dynamics and looking at the things that are said with the father and the prodigal son, but also, in particular, the other brother, uh, the second son, if you will, the older son, uh, in that. So that kinda, that's the, the overarching you know, motif father and son that I want to look at as we go through this. Now, I don't know how many you counted. I count 20. I don't know if you got 20. I count 20 occurrences in this exchange of those words. So that's pretty significant. Uh, And I see them, I see three father-son relationships in this text. There's Father Abraham and his children. There's the devil and his children. And there's the eternal father and eternal son. Okay, so let's talk about each of those. So first one, Father Abraham and his descendants. Uh, just a technique that I like to use. When I'm doing Bible study and I'm reading a passage where it's a back and forth, and you know, this is a contentious exchange, a caustic exchange here, uh, but even if it's just a regular back and forth with uh, the apostles, his followers, whatever it might be, uh, one of the techniques that I'll use to help you know, get some of the get an understanding, is not just read the back and forth, but then read it and just read the one set of statements, back to back to back to back, and then read the other set of statements, the responses, but back to back to back. You understand, right, what I'm talking about? And I think you can get some insights. And what's, what's interesting often is it doesn't seem like they're even talking about the same thing, right? They, they, they could even be missing each other uh, when you read it that way. Well, what's interesting to, to me in this text taking that same idea, the first two responses that they make to things that Jesus says to them refer to being Abraham's descendants, right? You see it in verse 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. And then again down in 39, he speaks again, Abraham is our father, they answered, right? That's their first two responses. And Jesus speaks to this three times. Three times he speaks to their relationship Uh, with Father Abraham, if you will, 37, 39, and then 56. So in 37, Jesus says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. And then down in 39, he says, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. And then all the way down towards the end, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. So Jesus both acknowledges that they are the descendants of Abraham while also saying 
they're not truly the children of Abraham. So, you know, what's that about? How are we to understand that? Well, Paul, two different places where Paul, I think, gives us a really helpful teaching and understanding of how we should uh, see this. So in Romans 9, uh, verses 6 to 8, and I'll just read a couple, couple snippets of that, Paul writes this, Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. It is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And then in Galatians 3, 7 to 9, Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So a right understanding is the true children of Abraham, right? Like a son to the father, do the things that Abraham did. They exercise the faith of Father Abraham, right? So we can be called children of Abraham because we exhibit those same characteristics. In the words of Genesis 15, uh, 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. We're the true children of Abraham who have our faith credited to us by God as righteousness. But that's not what Jesus says about who he's speaking to, right? You're not truly children of Abraham. What does he say to them? In one of the wow statements of this passage, verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil. And I read it like, oh, wow, that is quite a statement. Like, that's not a very Christian thing to say, Jesus. Uh, You belong to your father, the devil. Twice before 44, he says, you're looking for a way to kill me. Right? Two times he says it. You're looking for a way to kill me. You're looking for a way to kill me. You are showing the evidence of who your father is because the devil is a murderer and has been a murderer from the beginning. Right? So that's who your true father is. Now that's a wow statement. But here's what's even more wow to me about that statement. It's who he's saying it to. Did you pick this up in 31? To the Jews who had believed him. To the Jews who had believed him. That's who he calls children of the devil. What are we to make of that? Well, let me, tell, let me share with you how I read it. So first of all, we don't read this to mean that they believed him in the sense of what we just talked about, right? The faith of Abraham, the belief of Abraham, uh, what we might call saving faith, right? That's not the type of belief that it's describing. So what type of belief is it? I believe that they have heard about Jesus, they've started to see what he's done, they've heard his teaching, and they have begun to believe that indeed Jesus could be, and perhaps is, the Messiah, the King of Israel. But the question then is, what does that mean in their ears and in their minds when they think that? Well, here's how I read it. I read chapter 8. I read this exchange, this caustic exchange. I read it very similar to how I read the latter part of chapter 6. So just turn back to chapter 6 for a moment. I believe what Jesus is doing is he is winnowing 
his followers. He is separating the wheat and the chaff, the good and the bad. He's sifting those who are following him. And this is how I read chapter 6 as well. If you look at verse 53, John 6, 53. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, to me, I read that and say, that is a hard teaching. (laughs) That is a hard teaching when he says that. And that's what they say in verse 60. Take a look at verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And down in verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. I read that, that that is what Jesus wants to occur. He wants to winnow. And that is so counterintuitive to us, right? That is so counter. Why would you do this? And I think the answer is also in chapter 6. Look back at chapter 6, verse 15. John 6, verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. To me, this is the key that unlocks the understanding, is he knows that they are following him and their actions, they want to make him king by force. It's a political motivation that they have. This is what's driving them. This is the Messiah. This is the son of David. This is the king of Israel. And we're going to put him on the throne and he's going to free us from the tyranny of the Romans. But that's not what God has in mind, right? In this, in, in this point in time, that's not what God's thinking. As Jesus says to Peter at one point, you have in mind the things of man and not the things of God, right? Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Same idea here, right? They don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And so I believe he's winnowing them, okay? He's separating the wheat from the chaff in this contentious exchange. And one of the reasons that I conclude that is we know that some of his followers were zealots, right? If you're familiar with this term, zealots. So those who were looking for the you know, the political overthrow of Rome, if you will. In fact, one of his own apostles is Simon the Zealot. I believe it's also possible that Judas is a zealot. And just to take the point a little further, after Jesus' trial at the Sanhedrin, and then he's brought before Pilate, and Pilate brings him out, and he wants to set him free, right? The people and the, and the priests, they select the insurrectionist, Barabbas, Uh, and say, set him free instead of Jesus. So political motivation, and Jesus is separating them. Now, in the Mitchell household, uh, Dad has a question. I have three daughters, so I have a senior in college, a sixth grader, and a seventh grader. So Dad likes to ask this question, and the standard response when Dad asks this question is the rolling of eyes with the statement, oh, Dad... Uh, so perhaps you're familiar with this dynamic in your own home. But the question, one of the, this question that I'll ask is, are you listening with the intent to understand? Are you listening with the intent to understand? Because often I don't think we listen with the intent to understand, especially if it's a contentious, a debate, or you know, a back and forth, a caustic exchange. Are we even listening to what the other person is saying? And I think often, oftentimes we're not. The danger in a text like this, when we're looking at it and we're studying it and we're trying to understand it, the danger is we're so focused on the, your children of the devil, right? And you're trying to kill me and so forth, that we may miss the teaching, 
right? We don't want to miss the teaching. We don't want to miss Jesus' teaching in this text because of this caustic back and forth exchange. I compare this to, I do a series on the book of Deuteronomy. I have to mention Deuteronomy, right? I do a series on the book of Deuteronomy. And one of the things that I see when people read Deuteronomy, if they're reading through the law uh, in Deuteronomy, they can be very focused on the penalties, right? Because they are, can be very harsh penalties. They can be so focused on the penalty that they'll actually miss the teaching and the heart of the commandment. Right? So we don't want to do that. We want to get it. Uh, so understanding, and this goes to that third father-son relationship, eternal father and eternal son, that relationship in this text. So Jesus is sent by the father, right? He's, he's been in his father's house and all the things I listed out, learning from his father, listening, right? And he's sent by his father three times in the passage. Look at verse 38. 38, Jesus says, I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence. And down in verse 40, as it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. And then verse 42, I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. The Father, the Eternal Father, has sent the Eternal Son on his behalf, right? And he brings the teaching, the very beginning of the passage. This teaching that is not his own, but he got from the Father. If you hold to this teaching, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples, you will know the truth. And this is the truth that sets free uh, from sin. Now, tangent, quick tangent here. Sort of quick, but this will work uh, in, our, in our understanding. So... On the screen is the Greek for verse 858, right? Our primary text. Is the, this is the Greek 858. So there's four rows on the screen. The, the second row is the Greek, the Greek characters. The first row is the Greek transliterated right into characters that we're familiar with. The third row is the English translation. And then the fourth row is the uh, part of speech. Now, I want you to look at the part that's highlighted, right? Do you see what word that is in the highlighted? So, amen, right? Amin, amen. And it's there twice. Amen, amen. And if you look at the bottom row, the, the source, right, the part of speech, uh, you can see that it says H-E-B. So this is a Greek word, but it's not really a Greek word. Amen is a Hebrew word that carries forth into the Greek and, of course, carries forth into the English. And I would guess probably has proliferated into countless languages across the face of the earth, right? So here's the, here's the thing to understand about how amen gets used in the Bible. So there's two ways it gets used. If amen is at the beginning of a statement, doubled, amen, amen, what I'm about to say is a deep truth, take it to the bank kind of truth. If somebody makes a statement and then I say amen after they've made a statement, then what I'm saying is let it be so, right? What you've said, let it be so, okay? So amen, amen at the beginning and then a deep truth. Amen at the end, let it be so, what you've said. Okay, now, why do I go through this exercise? Because three times in this passage, Jesus 
speaks the double amen. And I think we can really see the, what the teaching is in those three times. First one is back in verse 34. So take a look at verse 34 here. So, very truly I tell you. So the very truly. So in the NIV, the amen, amen is very truly. Some translations it'll be truly, truly. Or in the old KJV, verily, verily I say unto you. Right? So that verily, verily, that's amen, amen. Amen, amen, I tell you. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, and this to me is the amen, amen part, you will be free indeed. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now in almost every translation, look in there at verse 36. Verse 35, it has a lowercase son, but in almost every translation, 36 is an uppercase son, but not everyone. Now, when I read it, and the way I read it, I don't think that it requires an uppercase S, right? Uppercase son. It's fine, of course, you know, that's where our mind goes, talking about Jesus, and that's appropriate. But I think it's speaking more generally. Back to this father-son relationship. Uh, the son carries, the, a, a true son to his father carries the authority of the father. If the son sets free the indentured servant, the slave, they will be free. And so, if the eternal son sets us free, that carries all the weight of the eternal father, setting us free from slavery to sin. Okay? So that's the first amen, amen. Jesus speaks with the authority of the father, the true son to the true father, with the authority to set the slave free, the slave to sin. Okay, second amen, amen is in verse 51. Verse 51. Amen, amen. Whoever obeys my word will never see death. Not only does the son, the eternal son, have the authority to set the slave free from sin, but has the, all the authority and the weight of the father to set us free from death. He has the authority to set us free from death. Now, it's interesting here when he, Jesus says that, their response. Verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Who do you think you are? When I read this, are you greater than our father Abraham? My mind goes back to chapter 4, back to John chapter 4. The woman at the well. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Remember she asked that question? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Here, are you greater than our father Abraham? And the answer is the third, amen, amen. And that's our primary text, verse 58. Verse 58. Amen, amen. Before Abraham was born, I am. Are you greater than Jacob, than our father Jacob? Are you greater than our father Abraham? Yes, I am. Amen, amen, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus, the true eternal son to his eternal father, speaks with the authority of the father, carries the weight of the father in what he says, indeed, 
carries the name of his father, right? The father's name is his name. He is the great I am. To close our time together, I want to look, talk a little bit more about this verse 58. So um, I, want to, I want to continue to be a learner when I study the scripture. I want to always have the, uh, the student mentality, always learning, right? Always seeing it fresh, always wanting God to reveal and to speak uh, into me more. But one of the things I also like to do is I want to try to remember back to when I was a new believer and like, how did I first read this text, right? What was going on? Now, I've, I became a believer when I was 24 years old, didn't grow up in a Christian home, uh, came to Christ through a college relationship. And so now I'm 51. I fall outside of this. You're not yet 50 years old. It's like, wow, I'm on the other side of that statement now. Uh, so 51, it's a little harder, getting a little harder to remember back to being that young believer. But this one I do remember. I do remember as a young believer reading this verse, 858, before Abraham was born, I am. And I remember that it was jarring to me. It was a jarring statement. But the reason it was jarring is because of the grammar. This could be a little insight into me. The grammar's wrong, right? Before Abraham was born, I existed. I was, right? That's the way you say it. It's like, that's not what he says. Before Abraham was born, I am. That's not the right way to say it. But I thought... Now, this does go back also to reading Exodus 3.14, Moses, who shall I say is sending me? I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you, right? And here, I thought to myself, this, there's something brilliant to this name, I am. There's something really brilliant to this name. It is always the present tense. Forever, it's the present tense. I am. So I think we can take something from this, right? We can glean from this idea. Jesus is forever, from eternity past to eternity future, forever present, the present tense. When I read through uh, the Old Testament, for example, right, I want to read through it with this lens. Jesus has always been present. So I may read it like this. Speaking of Jesus, he is revealing to Daniel what's to come. He is present with the exiles. He is calling Ezekiel to be a living testimony. He is in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He is seated on the throne, filling the temple with glory when Isaiah asked to be sent. He is at the head of the armies, leading Joshua to Jericho. He is wrestling with Jacob, turning the deceiver into an overcomer. He is telling Abraham and Sarah they will have a son, the promised son. And he is before Abraham, walking in the garden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. But Always being the I am, always being the present tense, always being present doesn't just mean he always was present, but that he is present. He is in our midst, even now advocating on our behalf at the right hand of the Father, with us always, even to the end of the age. 
So there's two great promises here for us. There's his teaching. The promise that if we hold to his teaching, that we will indeed be set free from slavery to sin and death. And the great promise that he will be with us. We have his eternal presence. Even today, Jesus is sent from the Father with all the authority of the Father to set you and me free from sin and death. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Father, Son, uh, we, it's, we cannot comprehend eternity, eternity past. We cannot comprehend, we cannot wrap our heads around what it means to be the eternal Father and the eternal Son. But we proclaim it. We acknowledge it. Jesus, you are the eternal Son, faithful in your Father's house, doing exactly what your Father has asked you to do. We proclaim your name. May all the hearers acknowledge these deep truths that you presented. Jesus, thank you that you were obedient to the Father even unto death, even to the shameful death on a cross on our behalf, taking our place, the penalty to us that you took our place. We praise you. We honor you. You are the great I am. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So six years ago, when I preached that sermon, I am, I made this statement and I put up this slide that you're going to see. To know I am is to know who I am. So it's the year 2020. I thought, oh, that's interesting. 2020, right? 2020 vision. And yet, it's like we see this year with less clarity than almost any year I can think of in my life. But Jesus brings clarity. To know I am is to know who I am. So I want to call us, and I am preaching to myself here. I'm preaching to myself. I really enjoy politics and political thought, but I'm preaching to myself here. I want to call us to revisit those passions which animate our words and actions. Do they align with Jesus' call to be set free from sin and to see others set free from sin? Or will they be winnowed, blown away with the chaff? People need peace. People need listening with the intent to understand. People especially need peace with God through Jesus, our great mediator and high priest. So will we, can we be ambassadors of peace through Jesus in these times? Let it be so. Receive this blessing, this benediction. May the peace of God, the eternal Father, a peace which transcends all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, the eternal Son. You are dismissed.